0: All right. This is our fifth and final uh, lesson in our study through the New Testament on the word slave, uh, the Greek word doulos. We've seen the parables of Christ. uh, We've seen up through uh, Romans, and we're going to finish this up uh, tonight and uh, looking primarily at how we relate to other people and then how we relate to Christ um, himself. So, We'll start tonight with First Corinthians nine and uh, look at First Corinthians nine. And all I did with this study is look up the look up the word um, slave, uh, slavery, um, and the verb to slave away, and uh, put them all in uh, verse order and uh, trying to discern a biblical theology of how to view ourselves got a very really interesting question on youtube i'm going to answer that uh, question tonight also got another question from someone at church uh, who's actually here tonight i'll answer his question as well uh when we go through this and uh, hopefully this will be a help if you do have questions uh comment in the that or you can email me on our church website and i'll i'll try to try to uh, think through Uh, Those those are some really good questions. So 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, Paul is talking about um, his surrendering his rights as an apostle. So he has the right as an apostle to uh, eat meat offered to idols because he knows idols aren't anything, but he lays down his rights and he tells us his mindset. And he uses this word slave um, in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself A slave to all that I might win more of them. So Paul probably talking to the Corinthians about evangelism and how to win people, um, uh, Mm -hmm. both uh, evangelistic and probably new believers who are struggling with the meat offered to idols. He lays down his rights and he tells us how he thinks. He says, I made myself a slave to all. So in our, in our culture, as in any culture, and in your family, in your relationships, uh, you may have used this word, I'm not your slave. <laughs> or you may think that, I'm not your slave. But actually, Paul says, I made myself a slave. I made myself a slave to all people. Why? And he tells us the reason why, so that he might win more of them. This is a wonderful evangelistic mindset. Like, and discipleship. But if our mindset's this way in evangelism, I'm making myself a slave to everybody on the planet so that I can win people. Um, And this isn't forced slavery, as slavery usually is forced. This is slavery by choice. And this is how the Christian evangelist needs to think. If you're going to reach people for Christ, be a slave to them and show them there's nothing that you won't do. Um, There's nothing below you. Um, no, no job too mundane, uh, no task too uh, smelly or disgusting that uh, you won't help someone with. Uh, no hospitality uh, that you wouldn't uh, maybe have someone over, and talk with them so that you can win them. And um, so the mindset of a slave, Paul is displaying. And then Second Corinthians, uh, chapter four. This is clearly that that probably has the idea of evangelism. This passage is likely discipleship and within the context of the local church. And Second Corinthians, we know, uh, as we're studying Sunday morning, is about ministry. So Paul's encouraging ministry, and he says, uh, again, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, for, we, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, and we're going to get to that word Lord in a second. Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. So Paul says, okay, uh, this is how I ministered with the gospel, and this is how I'm ministering to you, that this is how we view ourselves. Jesus Christ is our Lord, which means he owns slaves, and ourselves are your slaves for Jesus' sake. So Paul says, okay, this is how you minister.'" The people that people that are in our church that you're trying to minister to, people in your family that you're trying to minister to, think this way. I am your slave for Jesus' sake. Uh, this has really helped me uh, in in my home in particular, just thinking, all right, when something needs done, I'm not looking at, all right, who's can do it? I'm thinking, can I do this? Um, and if I can't possibly do it, then, then find somebody. But, No job, no job too low, because I'm thinking I'm a slave for Jesus' sake in ministry. We've already looked at uh, being a slave of Christ, Um, and there was a question as we are going through the New Testament in Galatians 4. So if you want to go to Galatians 4, uh, there was a a question about, it seems like there's not slavery here, but uh, sons, so in Galatians four it does talk about uh being an heir um is no uh the child is equal with slaves in this um roman culture until he reaches a certain age determined by the father and he's under the slaves or an equal with the slaves until he he comes to a certain time when he becomes heir of all mm-hmm. things. So he is uh talking about um slavery and uses this idea of slavery and we are at the end of chapter three we are not related to Hagar represents the law and so he's talking to Jewish people and people who are religious but they're slaves to their religious system slaves to the law and you think about it in our in the world false religions hold people captive in slavery to their system of laws whether it's Catholicism or Mormonism or Islam or any other false religions, you have to obey these rules and you have to be, you're a slave to that law and that people try and try and try. And eventually people say, I can't do it. I can't obey these laws. Um, This isn't working for me. I need, I need help. And so that's where the truth of the gospel in Galatians comes alive as the theme of the book of Galatians is the truth of the gospel sets people free from being slaves to the law And if you're telling someone who is trying so hard, like Paul was before he trusted Christ and like Martin Luther loved this book, trying so hard to earn his salvation and just falling short and knowing that you're short. And when you realize it's not of you, it's it's of grace, it's faith. And you're like, oh, that's it. Freedom comes. And so Galatians four talks about the freedom that we have because we're in God's family and we're no longer slaves to the law. It doesn't negate the rest of the New Testament talks about us being slaves of Christ. And in fact, he takes this one chapter and the next chapter, chapter five, he starts with what? For freedom, still using slave language here, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's like, you're set free from the law. So don't go back into thinking that you've got to earn your salvation and you've got to obey these lists of rules. You're set free from the law. But go down to verse 13, and this verse has been so helpful. I use it every new member's class. Uh, Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So when the world uses this idea, thinks of the idea of freedom, what do they think of? What comes to their mind when they think of freedom in relation to other people or in relation to a higher power or being out there somewhere they think freedom is freedom to do what i want i am free to do what i want that's how our world that's how our culture thinks so paul knows that god knows that and he says don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh you aren't free in christ to stand firm to do whatever you want but through love and he uses the word the the verb form of the word slave slave away for one another so this is what true christian freedom looks like you are free from the law so that you can slave away for one another through love because we love people around us in the church and then he's going to talk about being filled with the spirit and the spirit's going to help us to stay stay enslaved stay in this mindset that we are just to slave away for one another it's not a bad thing um in a local church Uh, serving other people uh, through love. This is what true Christian freedom looks like. And this matches what the rest of the New Testament says. You're free from the law and you're free from sin so that now you're a slave to righteousness, Romans six says. So what does slavery to righteousness looks like? This is what it looks like. Don't use your freedom uh, from the law as an opportunity for your flesh to disobey the law, but through love, slave away uh, for one another, as the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And true Christian freedom is, um, <clears throat> is slavery to love. All right, so um, this also matches First Peter 2.16, uh, which we won't uh, take time uh, to look at. All right, so in conclusion, there are... Um, the idea, the concept of slave, 158 times, most of the references, only a few times, are literal slaves, like in the prodigal son story, the son comes back and the slaves um, tell the older son and the younger son and they prepare the the feast and uh, the centurion has a slave that he wants Christ to heal remotely, uh, but most of the slave references are uh, slaves of God, uh, slaves of, and a few uh, we saw tonight, slaves of one another. And the the um, <clears throat> other thing that I want to do to conclude this is to think through the titles of Jesus, titles of Christ. Um, I did a brief word study on how many times we see the word Jesus in the New Testament, and uh, nine hundred and six times we see the word jesus and that that's his name uh but it means something we know what jesus name means and he's the savior so in in relation to if we call him jesus what does that mean we are so he's our savior and we are sinners in need of a savior so as soon as we call jesus and know that he is our savior. He is, it refers to us as then sinners, because only sinners need a Savior. And how many times have we tried to tell someone, you need Christ? How many times did Jesus tell the Pharisees and religious leaders and the rich young ruler that they needed something more than the law, and he was there? (laughs) And they said, "Eh, no, we're good. Like, the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm, I'm here. No, I don't. We don't want you. And how many times have we tried to evangelize, even as slaves of Jesus, with the right mindset, and people just don't see their need of a Savior? They're all set. I'm all set. You're not all set. (laughs) You're on your way to hell. And you need a Savior, and Jesus' name means Savior. So come to him as a sinner, and he'll save you from your sin. So that's 906 times. That's the most uh, of any of Jesus' names, uh, titles. In third place is this idea of Jesus as Christ. Uh, Christ is the Old Testament, is the Greek word uh, for Messiah. Old Testament, Hebrew is Messiah. Uh, And New Testament Greek is Christ, and it means anointed one or king. So Christ is king. If Christ is king, then how, how do we relate to Jesus as king? We are his subjects, all right? He's the king, we're his subjects. 528 times the New Testament tells us that he is Christ and we are, and, and implied with that is we are his subjects. So if you were to tell me before I had kids, you're a father, like, nope. <laughs> before I, when I was 24, 25, 25, uh, 24, my son was born. So age 23, I'm not a father. I'm male. <laughs> I'm able to be a father, um, but we don't call people that don't have kids uh, father. Um, if I didn't have any siblings, I was an only child, you, no one would call me brother, because that is a term that's a, a, a relative. It's in relation to other people. So when we call Jesus, Jesus, we are referring to him as Savior. When we call him Christ, referring to him as king, and we are subjects. There's no king who doesn't rule over any people. (laughs) Um, And there's no savior who doesn't have any people that he's rescued. How about Lord? Lord is mentioned, as far as I can tell, over 700 times in the New Testament, and at least 638 of those times is talking about Jesus. So this is in second place only to Jesus. And Jesus is called Lord. Lord. Now, in a first century Roman uh, culture where a third or so of the people were slaves, they knew what this word meant. This word is everywhere. So who is a Lord? He's only a Lord if he is the owner of slaves. So when we tell people, Jesus is my Lord, in our culture, we lose a little bit. But if you say Jesus is my master and I'm his slave, ooh, Mm -hmm. that's where people start to... No, no, no. They're fine with Jesus as Lord. Like we're fine with necklaces that have the cross on it, but no one in the first century was wearing cross necklaces because it was like us wearing electric chairs or lethal injection. Uh, on we don't do that because that would be odd. But now it's it's okay to wear. it. It's a sign of hope and and whatever people look at with uh, mm-hmm. with wearing a cross. So, Jesus is called. Lord. And if he's called Lord, then how do we relate to him as he's our master and Lord? We are his slaves. So when the New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord, he's only a Lord if he has slaves. And 638 times, it's not a few times. This is not an obscure word that, oh, just a few times. And the idea of us being slaves was mentioned almost in every book of the New Testament, 158 times. So this is not also not a minor concept and just mentioned once or twice. This is a major biblical concept, major theme that we can develop because we know we have enough text of Scripture. A few times uh, the word Lord in the New Testament is used as a sign of respect um, uh, Sarah calls Abraham, Lord, as a sign of respect, but even in that, she's also uh, dependent on him and submissive to him. However, uh, and I got this from the uh, theological word book, um, Lexham theological word book, the association of this word Lord, curios, with the risen and exalted Jesus is an early Christian confession that acknowledges the superiority of Jesus over all things. So let's get a flavor of that from Romans 10.9. How does anyone come to Christ? And in our evangelism, Romans 10.9 is a a wonderful evangelistic verse that is going to require some explanation to a 21st century audience. So Romans 10.9, a verse that we know and love, has this idea. Verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth, that's agree with God, agree with the word, agree with reality. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So is it possible for people to trust Jesus, ask him into their heart, whatever that means, and not say that he is Lord? Or submit to him as master and I'm his slave. According to this verse, the answer is no. Because if you don't confess Jesus as Lord, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, we were your slaves. We were your slaves. And he's going to say what? Mm -hmm. Depart from me. I don't know you. You worked iniquity. You didn't live as the New Testament expects slaves to live. You didn't have me as your master because the master, or if if I was your master, you'd do it exactly what I told you to do. You'd listen to me. You'd trust me. You'd be dependent on me uh, even to the death. Um, this is how slaves <laughs> obeyed their master. They, when it comes to God and money, you can't slave away for two masters. It was clear. And how do we know? And we talked this morning with a few, how do we know of people that, trust christ we look at their fruit and jesus says in matthew 7 after that look at people's fruit anyone can say lord lord yeah i'm a christian okay so is jesus your master and your sleeve i wouldn't say that well read through the new testament when you see this over and over and over and over again you're like that really is how i need to view myself um in a lowly way and actually that's how you come to jesus if you don't confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you won't be saved. Because that's what it says in Romans 10.9. Now look at Romans 14. You may have looked at this uh, last week. In Romans 14, verse 9, similar to 1 Corinthians 9 about um, not offending people in their in their conscience. Um, Romans 14, verse 9 Um Verse 8 says, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So the Lord owns us. You see that there? That's slave language. We belong to the Lord. Whether we live or die, it's all about pleasing him. Verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again. Why did Christ die, and why was he raised? Verse 9 tells us why. That he might be lord both of the dead and of the living he would be master (laughs) he would be superior he would be over them first corinthians 12 says that philippians 2 uh says that when jesus took the mindset of a slave and god exalted him let's go to philippians 2 and see the end of see the slave language that's in philippians 2 as jesus humbles himself um takes them form although he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped Uh, in verse 7 philippians 2 7 but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men and being in human form he humbled himself as a slave because that's what slaves do Uh, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient and slaves are obedient to the point of death slaves are willing to die for their master even death on a cross Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Jesus Christ is superior over all things and we are inferior to him, dependent on him. So Jesus is Lord and uh, his universal rule over all things on behalf of God. Jesus claims before the, uh, in Matthew 28, to have all authority in heaven and on earth. You can see it in the re- in the um, resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 28, mm-hmm. that Jesus is has universal rule. Everything is subject to God through Christ because of Christ's resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And then Revelation 1 and and 17 both tell us that Christ is going to rule over all things. So I've got three uh, conclusions here uh, and answer the question that I received um, last week about what if slavery today is such um, a bad thing, why does the Bible not condemn it? That's the essence of the question. If slavery owning people um, is is awful, then why doesn't God just say with stealing and with adultery and with uh, rape and incest and and everything else? Why doesn't God just say, "Thou shalt not own slaves"? Instead, he he regulates slaves. So this is how much slaves cost. This is how you treat your slaves. In the New Testament, four different passages. Are written to masters as Christians who are owning slaves, and a whole book of the Bible, Philemon's written to a master who owns Onesimus, and he's never told sell all your slaves, get rid of them, don't have, don't own slaves. Instead, the idea is make sure that you treat them well, and you've got a mat that you realize that you have a master in heaven. You're going to give an account to him. But that in in a 21st century American mind is is so awful. And I I think some of these conclusions will help us understand why it's such a hard concept for uh, people to grasp. So we need to see that though our heart and our culture do not like the idea of being owned by Jesus, it is a thoroughly biblical concept. He is our Lord. We confess him as Lord. This is how we come to him for salvation. This is how we live for him after salvation. But our heart and our culture doesn't like this idea of being owned by anybody. And we're owned by Jesus. It is pretty clear in the New Testament. Why doesn't our culture and our heart like this? Here's my solution. I I think this is because we, with our culture, we idolize personal freedom and autonomy. That is the real issue, not God's condoning slavery in the Old Testament or New Testament or regulating it. It is the problem with us and our love for self. We know in the end times men are going to be lovers of selves more than lovers of God. Men are going to say, I know better than this book knows about how to treat people. I don't. (laughs) I know better how to define myself than this book does. No, you don't. God defines you. God helps you to know how to live a flourishing life under him. But whenever a culture idolizes personal freedom and autonomy, what could we expect from that culture? We expect anything that goes against personal freedom and autonomy to be anathema or accursed. So abortion is required in this culture that supports personal freedom and autonomy, because if you don't have abortion, you're taking away someone's freedom to not be pregnant. That's just one example of many of how this idolization, this worship of self is showing itself in our culture. And our culture influences us. It influences our heart. It influences how we think too. And so we have to be aware that we want the word though, to influence us more than our culture does. So this concept of being owned and completely dependent on and only trying to please God to a culture that idolizes personal freedom and autonomy. If we say, no, we're not going to live um, for self. My personal freedom and autonomy is so far down the list of my goals or mission in life. My mission is just to please God. What planet are you from? they're going to say you guys you christians are accursed you're anathema if you don't join us in this revolution for personal freedom and autonomy we are going to be looked at as anathema and that's how christians have been treated throughout church history that's the first conclusion second see that uh that we need to see in translating this word correctly throughout the new testament that the twisting of doulos and its related words just to mean servant when they actually mean slave has not been a help to our understanding of God's word, but has softened or blurred it. And if God's word is a sword, it's dulled the edge a little bit on its piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So it has not convicted. If we soften the edge whenever the edge actually should be there, with we are slaves and He is Lord and we'll live or die for him, it doesn't matter. It's all about pleasing him. Christianity and what it demands of all followers of Christ is nothing less than denying self, dying to self, following Christ alone, which the concept of slavery is the best analogy for. Slaves have to learn to deny self, die to self, and follow their master, do whatever their master says. So to to capture that, what Jesus asks of all of his followers, the concept of slavery does fit it very well. Even, it doesn't matter what the world and our hearts say. <laughs> We're not worried about that. We're worried about what God says and as He re- revealed himself in his word. And then the final conclusion. Since this idea of us being slaves to Jesus, our master is a primary way in which God wants us to think about um, reality. I believe that God doesn't condemn slavery in the Old Testament or the New Testament because slavery is wonderful if you have a wonderful master. And we do. And we will for all eternity.